This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, mates of Equity Mates. Or I guess that just makes you Equity Mates. Anyway, it's Bryce here. One of the most frequently asked questions we get is, where do we find information about all these stocks and and where's a good place to start? Now, we could do a whole episode on this and we often do touch on it, but the best place to start is by signing up to our Thought Starters weekly email. Each week, we send you some cool stuff that has caught our eye during the week, as well as some more detailed articles on stocks and invested relating content. We also include Basics 101. These are articles tailored specifically for beginners to really propel you on your way. We don't spam you. I mean, we hate spam. It's once a week and there's enough stuff in there to occupy you for a full day of browsing at work. Now, Ren puts a lot of effort into finding quality articles for you guys. So if anything, just sign up so he feels the love. Head to equitymates.com and chuck in your email at the bottom of the page. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, (laughs) where we help you learn to invest in 15 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make a return. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by the forever giggling Equity Mate, Ren. How are you going, bro? I'm very good, mate. I'm very good. That is the, the giggling is the soundtrack to this podcast. <laughs> anyway, so we are here for a, 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 an equity mates first. <laughs> an equity mates first? Yeah. What is it? We're having a, a guest on the show twice. Wow. I know, it's big. We've yeah. got Andrew Brown back on the show. He was our very first guest on the show way back in February or March last year. And uh, if you haven't listened to it already, as we say in this episode... You must go and listen to it because uh, it's a fantastic episode to listen to as a beginner. The way that he speaks is, is great. So we've come back to him and uh, we've got him back on the show. So this episode, we discuss two main things. We we look at some of the stocks that he recommended last episode to yep. review the performance. And we also look at uh, information flow and how he keeps on top of his information. Yeah. So that's a big thing that we wanted to do with Andrew and we want to do with our guests going forward is... Not only understand their investing journeys and how they got here, but also understand like how they, what their habits are, what their investing habits are, what these experts do to uh, maintain their edge, I guess, 
And so in particular, in this episode, we asked about how he manages information, what information he reads, and what his typical day looks like at age 72. But before that, we speak about, we recap the last episode, and uh, surprisingly, he picked a lot of out there stocks, and they all seem to do pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, he did. He did. There's a reason he's an expert. <laughs> yeah. <we> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this is a great one. You're going to definitely get a lot of key takeaways from this. So uh, we hope you enjoy So uh, today we've got uh, Andrew Brown from E72 Holdings with us. So Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. So we, this is actually our second interview with you. You're the first uh, interview guest to come back on the pod. So congratulations for that milestone. Excellent. Thank you. We're honored. <laughs> for our listeners who um, haven't heard uh, the first interview with you, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, your investing history and what you're doing here at A72. Yeah, sure. Um, I started in 1980 as an investment analyst at the Prudential Assurance Company in London, which is the biggest life insurance company over there. Um, I got given Australia to look at. Um, from there, I progressed through stockbroking. Um, I spent quite a number of years uh, as an uh, analyst for stockbroking firms, analysing banks and insurance companies. Um, in 1994, I jumped back over the fence and became an institutional money manager again with uh, AMP, um, pretty terminal. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, from there, I uh, moved to Rothschild, where I was the head of Australian equities for five or a bit years. Um, and then after that, uh, around about 2003, I've pretty much been doing my own thing, um, investing in smaller companies. Uh, East 72, myself, uh, my wife put some money into more of a Shell Company, in other words, a company's got nothing in it, um, which is listed on the NSX, the National Stock Exchange of Australia, back in the middle of 2016. And so we've been uh, running this for uh, just a bit less than two years, and we invest uh, basically globally, and we short sell indices and stocks, uh, as well as uh, obviously buying stocks, which means going long. And so we run what's called a hedge fund, where we go long and short. Um, so yeah, that's what we've been doing the last couple of years, and we, we had a great first year. This year's been a bit trickier uh, for reasons which we'll explain later on. Nice. Well, Alec and I are actually looking for a shell company, so if you know <laughs> any, let us know. Actually, uh, thanks for the lithium boom. Uh, shell companies are quite expensive. They're um, also getting, to be fair, they're getting less useful because particularly the Australian stock exchange are really clamped down on. Uh, so-called shell dealing, where you have more of a company that you know might have sort of made postage stamps or something exciting like that, and, and then a lithium uh, explorer comes along and wants to put its business in, and uh, certainly the rules around doing that are much tighter now than they've been uh, in the past, um, and they're getting tighter still. So, Andrew, the last two episodes that we did with you, our very first, as you said, Brands and. I think that the feedback we get from them is, is fantastic just through your way of speaking and your style of investing is very much in the way of, or the line of how Alec and I invest. So just if our listeners haven't listened to it already, definitely go back and do so prior to uh, listening to this one because you gave a couple of uh, stock tips at the end of uh, the oh, first Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> We discussed quite a bit. I mean, the, the, the most explicit stock tip I think I gave you was to, was to buy shares in PM Capital Global Opportunities Fund, which yes. is listed on the ASX. It's a, 
listed investment company that invests globally outside of Australia. Um, it's a great example, actually, the way it's panned out as well, you know, just in terms of real common sense. Um, at the time, the shares were trading um, around about a dollar, and at the time, the shares had a net asset backing of about a dollar sixteen. Um, so obviously, they were, they were about a fifteen percent discount to NTA, and this is NTA before tax. I stress. So um, the upshot is, if you bought them at a dollar today, they're about a dollar twenty-seven and a half. Um, so, and they paid about three point six cents in dividends. So let's just break that down a little bit because I think it's really instructive. Um, the first reason the shares have gone up is the NTA is not a dollar sixteen in the bit anymore; it's about a dollar forty-one. So um, the actual, you know, return on the portfolio is over twenty percent. So uh, PM Capital, PM stands for Paul Moore, who's the, the guy who runs it. Um, so you, you had a return from the portfolio of about twenty-one percent. In addition to that, the second return you had is you had three point six cents in fully franked dividends. So paid out, which is not too bad. And then finally, which is really interesting, because it's very much the way I try to invest, is the discount to net asset backing has closed up. Okay, it, it was about 17%, it's now about 10. Okay, so $1.27 versus $1.41 is about 10. So you've made a 7% return just from the discount to NTA closing up. And the reason it's closed up is because when we recommended them to you or suggested them to you, um, uh, PM had a bit of a tricky run, but it was starting to come good. Uh, and now, now they've had an excellent year uh, over the last year, and so investors have got a lot more comfortable with PM in the long term, and so they've closed the discount up. Mm. So, so, so far that's a hit rate of 100%. <laughs> yeah, 100%. So that's and up. I should stress that was one of the most explicit recommendations. And do you still yeah. own it? Yes, I do. I actually still own it. Uh, the, reason, the reason being is there's still a, an okay discount to the pre-tax NTA. Uh, there's no real discount to the post-tax, but I still weigh the composition of the portfolio, which actually hasn't changed that dramatically over the last year. It's still chock full of global banks, which are pretty cheap. Um, and should do well in a rising interest rate environment. It's got a lot of European banks in there as well, which are actually much cheaper than the US counterparts and continue to rank. So, uh, yeah. Um, we did also, I mean, let's look at the, the other side of the equation. We spoke about McGraw, which is obviously <laughs> a uh, real estate agent in Australia. The stock revenue is about 67, it's currently about 38. Um, why has that gone down? Um, quite a few reasons, actually. <laughs> um, first of all, uh, obviously, the real estate listings market has come off the board, and, and these guys obviously depend on volume, not so much price, um, in terms of the real estate um, listings business. But people still don't really understand the company. The key value driver in the company is actually its rental book. Okay, so it's this property management book where it manages properties for you know for landlords. That, that, that income stream is much, much more valuable than the one-off income stream from just selling someone's property. The problem, of course, is that the income stream from a one-off sale of a property is quite big. Mm. Um, the second reason is that, that obviously McGraw struggled to come to grips with being a public company as opposed to being uh, a private company dominated by uh, John McGraw. Um, and um, there's been a complete turnover of the board who were largely installed at the time the company went public. Uh, and I think it's fair to say the executives and everybody else has really struggled with the whole public company thing. 
It's very interesting. That's something to keep in the back of your mind sometimes when you see a really good business and it's been private and done really well and then it goes public and it just really you know, flops around and struggles. Yeah. And it's because of the greater disclosure. And in the case of McGrath, it's the only listed real estate agent. So you can imagine what happens every time there's a McGrath announcement. The first way of printing it off is the strategist at Ray White. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So you know, looking at the margins and everything yeah, else. Yeah. Uh, the third issue, obviously, I mean, there was a lot of um, scurrilous publicity about the uh, about the social habits of uh, the founder, uh, his predilection for horse race gambling. Uh, so that certainly didn't help. And he yeah, he's obviously gone backwards as a consequence of things. Uh, I still own them. I own more than I did then. I've got wow. more as I come down. Because uh, I believe that, that the value of the company is basically taken up solely by its property management business, uh, or the red roll, as people call it, and I reckon I'm getting the rest of the company for not much. So, so with um, McGrath, do you worry about the agents that have left? Um, yes, I do. I mean, obviously, I prefer that they haven't left. Um, I mean, one of the things when companies have been private for so long and people have amassed some degree of wealth in the equity is that they sell it and move on, and they... Yeah, they were nailed down for you know a period of time, and as soon as uh, as soon as those handcuffs, if you will, were off, and the handcuffs were that their shares were what's called escrowed, in other words, locked up and not available for sale. And as soon as the escrow finished, uh, a lot of the agents, and they're quite high profile agents in Sydney's Eastern Suburbs, are up to the rent and founded their own little company called the Agency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I prefer they start, but the key is McGrath's expanding outside of Sydney's Eastern Suburbs, so as time goes on. Yeah, the sort of glitterati thing about it and just the scurrilous gossip in a relatively small area will start to be a bit less relevant. Yeah. Now, uh, we should defend uh, your pick, though. You did say on the last podcast a two to five year time horizon. Absolutely. And only years past. So, so only years past. So, yeah. it's like, I mean, one of the things I think that's right to stress is patience. That, that you know, you're, you know, you're not going to buy stuff at the bottom. You know, and then just watch it go up unless you're extremely lucky or have information you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, certainly, I mean, often time involves, you know, just waiting, waiting, waiting. If I can give you a spectacular example, which we didn't mention, but has it, gone bananas, and many of you, uh, younger listeners, would be very, very familiar with this company, which is COVID. Yeah. Um, COVID had been floating for over a year, it floated at a dollar 80, it went down as low as a dollar 30. The company's doing absolutely nothing wrong in terms of uh, building out what it said it was going to do, the way it used its money, um, the way its profits were coming along. It had five profit upgrades, mm. and the shares were still below <laughs> the dollar eighty float price after uh, I think it was about fifteen months roughly. Um, and we got to about June of last year, and COVID really started doing some very very interesting deals in the telephony space, particularly you know as a Big reseller of Vodafone mm-hmm. um, and under the COVID mobile brand. Uh, and that really started to get traction because the, the price discounts were, were tremendous. Uh, and of course, they were able to do great things like package it up with a phone. And as, as, as you all know, the market's changed whereby you, know, you don't buy your phone on 24 month installments from Telstra. You buy a phone outright and then you can switch around and COVID and offering some brilliant deals. And people didn't understand the company, they thought it was going to get swamped by Amazon. And as late as uh, you know, June of last year, the stock was at $1.65. Um, they did one or two presentations and people started to get the message. And 
Pilsen had the stock since then has been to $10. Yeah. So he was hopelessly cheap um, for 15 to 18 months, and then uh, in the space of four or five months, basically, it uh, went up fivefold. Do you think it's beyond its valuation now? I think it's a bit expensive at the moment, yeah, absolutely. Um, I had some carrying. Um, and um, I sold out certain $10, but you know, I, I made great money out of it. Yeah. Um, but it's very expensive for me at the moment. I think it's kind of, you know, it's discounting things a bit too far into the future. Yeah. But um, people misunderstood the management as well. They didn't actually go along and get to meet the management, get to know the management. And when you do that, yes, they're controversial, yes, they turn up in hoodies and jeans, but they know where every dollar in the company and people didn't understand the kind of the technology, the algorithms, the global nature of the business. You've got people in Eastern Europe bidding product into Kogan, um, you know, at low prices, you know, so that they can pass that on to you. Um, and people just didn't understand how good a, a company it was. You know, I think they thought it was just buying cheap stuff from China and flogging it on. You know, this is a complete misunderstanding. Mm. Um, I think we also talk about Rihanna and Spectrum, and last time we spoke about um, uh, basically old-style media. Yes. Um, and we touched on three or four companies. We touched on News Corporation at the time. They were about $70.80. Uh, they're currently about just over $21, so they're up 18%. Uh, that's really on the back of the continued increase in price of their uh, subsidiary, which is uh, REA Group or realestate.com. Mm. Um, but they also started to get to grips with some of the problems they're having. Foxtel obviously is not what it used to be, so uh, they're starting to cut costs and do things there and, and try and improve things. So, uh, so that's been pretty good. Just to contextualise for, for people, just in the periods of time we've been speaking from you know, roughly about a year ago, the Australian stock market's up about 3%. Um, if you include dividends on top of that, it's up about 9 Okay, um, and the S&P 500 in the US is up just under 16%. Okay, so it's obviously one of the top markets around the world. Um, so this course done pretty well. Um, we also touched on My Entertainment Group, which owns Channel 9. Um, and at the time, uh, I think the stock was about $1.10. Uh, it's now $2.30. Uh, why is that? Um, really, two or three reasons. First of all, it's too cheap at $1.10 anyway. Um, you know, the, the cash flow... Has been valued about, or the cash flow cover generates, and we'll talk about this later and how you look at that. It's been valued about five times cash flow, and that multiple has expanded out. Secondly, their pre tax, pre interest cash flow at the time was about 200 million a year, it's now about 250 million a year. How come? Well, certainly a chunk of that is the fact they now don't have to pay about 25 to 30 million dollars a year license fees to the government, so they've got one off kick from that, but also, as you'd probably be aware, their ratings have been going up. Uh, thanks to that wonderful letter acronym, MATS. So they've been catching up with Channel 7. They've been garnering an increasing share in the ad market, um, not necessarily from Channel 7. It's all been coming from uh, Channel 10. Yeah. Um, so uh, that, that's been good. And, of course, the rating of the shares has gone up as well. So you know, that's why the shares have effectively doubled on, on you know, monthly uh, 20% increase in, in cash flow. Uh, the other one is Fairfax. They're actually funny enough about where they were a year ago. Um, that sounds a bit funny. A year ago, they're about a dollar two. Um, they're now about uh, 74 cents. But of course, in the meantime, you've also got a tenth of a share in Domain. And uh, Domain obviously owns the property portal of the same name. 
So you had one Fairfax at 74 cents and one tenth of the domain, which uh, was spread into about $3.20, so 32 cents. And altogether you had a dollar six and you got a bit of dividend. So the domain flow was sensible, but um, the, um, the, the sort of online assets have been derated a bit since that flight. Um, so it's, it's looking a bit more interesting at these mm. kind of prices, but I don't know. Um, um, oh, we also touched on Apple. Yes. Um, Apple's up 34% roughly from 140 to 187. Yeah. Um, that's despite the fact they're selling less phones now than they were a year ago. Um, they put the price of them up uh, quite appreciably, which you can do some simple arithmetic with the Apple quarterly reports and the scale of that. Um, and really what Apple's turned into is uh, pretty much capital management machine now. So um, they're 280 billion of cash, don't forget, they've got 100 billion of debt, and they also got to pay 38 billion in tax as they bring their money from uh, overseas tax havens back to the US, and they also owe the EU about 13 billion as well. But they've had quite uh, aggressive share buyback programs, and they, uh, in fact, have really re emphasised that recently. So, what's going on is that, that in fact, the profitability of Apple's flatlining. Uh, and will probably start to go down, but they're using the strong cash flow they have to actually buy back shares. Um, and they tend to be very price uh, insensitive, as a lot of those large American growth companies are. They're quite insensitive about the price they buy shares back at, which I find a bit bizarre. But, you know. <laughs> so, um, you so, know, Apple, in a sense, you know, we got the sort of that, we got part of the analysis right, but certainly the, the share prices you know, have stripped my expectations. So, do you still think it's too? Uh, it's overvalued. Are you still short? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, not massively so, but certainly I still think it's it's overpriced. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, how can the world's best? Oh, that, that, was, yeah. that was my follow-up yeah. question. Yeah. He's investing. I mean, basically, what? what I mean, the, the risk with Apple is that basically um, they don't catch the next wave of smartphones, whatever they are, and it's worth remembering as well. The smartphone market is now mature. If you don't believe me, um, if you look at the Garden affairs, they're, they're one of those big IT consultancies. In the fourth quarter of 2017, uh, smartphone sales were actually below where they were in the fourth quarter of 2016, and the rolling 12-month growth in the fourth quarter of 2017 was only 2% across the world in smartphones. And, of course, now you've got a whole bunch of uh, differentiated price point manufacturers uh, who, you know, whose product is pretty much of the muchness, really. You know, you can't really say you know, Samsung's massively inferior to Apple. I appreciate people who've got brand loyalty. You know, amazingly so in the case of Apple, which they're now being, you know, they're, now, they're being punished for that brand loyalty with, with ever-increasing price points. So, um, you know, you've now got you know, two or three really incredible Chinese manufacturers at much lower price points. As, uh, as well as Samsung, of course, and others. So I tend to think that, um, you know, with that maturity in the market, I think Apple's ability to keep prices up is going to be low, and that starts to get a bit more interesting. Yeah. So. Do you think their push into services will do much to save them? Well, it's done that already. I mean, it's even services is a bit of a business that's growing, and a company that we know all profits and is not growing. Yeah. Uh, but don't forget services as well. I mean... You know, one of the issues with Apple is it's a closed loop. You know, there are many, many other service companies that are doing the same thing. They're actually much better. You know, Dropbox has recently listed. 
Um, you know, there, there are various other Dropbox like companies, but not as good. And then, of course, you've got Google. You know, so you know, the, the issue is that cloud, cloud um, storage, if you will, you know, whether you're you or I personally, I acknowledge that backing up to iCloud is very easy if you have a Mac. Uh, but you know, if if you don't have a Mac, then it's, it's irrelevant to you. Yeah. You've got a multitude of others, whether it's you know, whether it's the you know the Google one or Dropbox or something in most this kind of There you go. Nice. Well, Andrew, part of what we wanted to discuss tonight was uh, information and staying on top of information. Yes. Looking around your room right now, you've got four monitors, yep. a bucket load of books, <laughs> and about 200 uh, plastic sleeve folders with what looks like all the types of uh, companies that you're investing in, or at least keeping an eye on. That's right. And so one thing that we want to try and understand is the habits that expert investors have when it comes to understanding uh, how you stay on top of things. Yeah, so yeah. I guess the first question is, given there's so much information out there and so many sources, you've got four monitors going on, hmm. what are your go-to sources of information, I guess, free? Yep. And also, do you have a year? Yeah, um, this is changing. I mean, this is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a particularly interesting question right now. Um, many of your listeners may or may not have heard of, of five horrible letters, uh, MIFID. Um, MIFID uh, stands for Markets in Financial Instruments Directive. Um, and it's not just MIFID, it's MIFID 2. So it's the second one of these. And as you probably gathered, that could have emanated from only one place. And Yes, you're absolutely right, the European Union. <laughs> um, the biggest bureaucracy in the world. Yeah. Um, the issue with MIFID is basically stock brokers, so people that um, you might ring up or deal with um, in, in securities, basically um, most of the big broking firms around the world, you know, the UBS, uh, the UBS is the Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley's, they obviously will execute share transactions for you or any other transaction, but also, of course, they offer research. And the idea is if you're a client, you basically get the research for free. Okay? And what's happened is the EU basically says you can't do that anymore because it's a conflict of interest. So you've got to break down effectively the three things that a major house like that will offer, which is on-market transactions. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Research and corporate. Corporate, um, you know, corporate offerings like IPOs or yeah, trades or whatever. Okay, and so they, they want that broken down. So what's happening is, is in fact, uh, research is getting priced. And so in a few years' time, because it's only really just started and hasn't developed yet, there is the chance for your folks to actually buy research from a Goldman Sachs or a Northern Standard. At the moment, it's way too expensive. Okay, um, I get... I largely get that for nothing because of all the transactions that I do through an intermediary platform. Okay, but in due course, you'll be able to you'll be able to get that uh, for payment. Um, at the moment, the kind of the free sources I get, um, the most obvious free source is the company itself. Um, you know, big companies and particularly companies outside of Australia tend to have very good investor relations departments. Um, they're obviously obligated by securities laws to keep you up to date with absolutely everything, um, particularly if you're looking at US companies. I mean, the sheer quantum of filings uh, uh, is unbelievable, and, and the kind of information you can dredge out of that, and the kind of homework you can do for yourself uh, is, is good. Uh, it's the same Australian fairness. It's done in a different way, but Australian companies tend to be you know, quite disclosive, um, you know, because they're using the same accounting standards as every other company. So there's the company itself, there's obviously the, the press, the media, uh, that's all free. I do increasingly use things like Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, Twitter's fabulous because, it's, you know, I mean, you regulate what you want to, what you want to see. You know, so, you know, if you don't want to see Kim Kardashian, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> like it. You know, and, and so, you know, I don't know Kim Kardashian on my feed, but I've got absolutely oogles of people that um, discuss security. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in all kinds of different ways, from you know, extremely speculative Australian mining stocks, you know, up to you know people, you know, discussing you know what the meaning of Warren Buffett scratching his nose. <laughs> so it's um, you know that, that kind of stuff's great, and, and you find more and more you know people because of the network effect that Twitter has. I do uh, have some free bulletin boards that I go on, uh, which are usually outside of the outside of Australia. Um, in the US and, and one in particular in Canada. Um, I do pay for subscriptions to the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times um, so I can, you know, I can keep abreast of sort of broad news, if you will, uh, and things like that. Um, and then outside of that, it depends if you've got a security that's in a particular industry, do you then go beyond that and actually buy a trade, you know, not call it publication, but they're all online these days. So, you know, I actually, I actually keep a fairly low abreast of the shipping industry okay. for, at, the, at the moment because most of the securities in the shipping were all actually very, very cheap. Uh, and so I'm really interested in, you know, what's going on with freight rates for containers and, um, you know, daily higher rates for very large crew carriers, you know, which are oil tankers and things like that, you know, and changing the critical and stuff. So you've got to look around. I mean, it's up to you to just go ferreting, to be quite honest, but it's a lot easier to do that. Mm. So can I just ask, with your media subscriptions, you yeah. said Wall Street Journal and Financial Times, yeah. but not uh, Australian Financial Review? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do read the Fed Review. Okay. Um, and, yeah, that's been, um, you know, I think, you know, the Fed's actually been extremely good in the 
last year when they've, um, you know, they, they've really unraveled two or three, um, you know, two or three companies on the Australian market that, you know, that haven't done the right thing by investors, in my opinion. Um, you know, one of which is yeah, a big one, which, uh, mm-hmm. I, which uh, obviously is going to the receivership. But, um, I, had, uh, I had a short position in Blue Sky Alternative Investments. Oh, wow. Um, you know, which went all the way from sort of two bucks on to fourteen and all the way back to two. Um, and you know, thanks to the research report we're not sure. Um, and you know, which kind of people you know, my my logic is very much the same as the short seller logic. So uh, that was um, yeah, but the fit did a lot of work as well, getting yeah, putting that out. So uh, yeah, the fin's actually pretty good. Um, it, you know, in, in terms of Australia, but elsewhere in Australia, I mean, you know, you really you know, know you need to get broker research just to uh, get on top of things, and you can get that, you know, uh, from one means or other. Um, so, yeah, other than that, as I say, I think it's, you know, there's so much stuff now that's free, though, yeah. and, and please don't, you know, please don't ignore, um, you know, the uh, the stuff overseas. I mean, because you're not an Australian company in the US, there's going to be a peer company in US. So when they report their quarterly, yeah, it's going to have some relevance perhaps for the Australian company you've got an interest in. So things like that. So based on all the information that's out there, all the information you can get, yep. you've only got so much time in the day. Yep. So what does a typical day look like uh, here at E72? Like how do you sit through all that information? Okay. Uh, basically what I try to do is like anybody else try to really plan the day. Um, that tends to be based around the fact that if I know one of my investing co- one of the investee companies is reporting, um, obviously I'll um, you know, I'll, I'll take an interest in that report, so I might listen to the webcast, uh, might phone in to the teleconference, may ask questions, yeah. uh, may not. And don't forget that's globally as well, okay? So, you know, I might go home and in Europe, you know, there'll be teleconferences on at, you know, 5 in the evening Australian time at the moment. Uh, the, the US obviously tends to be later at night, our time, but a lot of companies report before the market opens. So that's kind of 10 o'clock at night, so I might tune into those um, and, you know, go through them. So I try to obviously keep on top of what's going to happen, you know, a week ahead or two weeks ahead, what companies are recording, you know, that, that's going to be relevant to me, either things I'm looking at or alternatively, obviously, particularly stocks that I already own or, of course, stocks that I've got a short position in as well. Um, so, yeah, that's quite important. So I just try to plan things out. Uh, and then, you know, where I've got a, what we might call a spare day, uh, it's a matter of just, you know, there are companies that you want to have a look at that you've been thinking about for a little while, for whatever reason, will come on to, you know, why you might think about a company. Uh, but, you know you, you know, you just sit down and start going through those, which might involve building a spreadsheet model, you know, just doing some, you know, cool research on, on the thing and trying to, you know, build up, really trying to build up an investment thesis around it, which I think, you know, is one thing I really encourage you, you know, your listeners to do. If you're going to invest in something or even short sell something, there's got to be a rationale behind it. And, and you know, increasingly we call these things investment thesis because yeah, there's a thesis about why you're buying it. Yeah. Right? And it's going up, it's not a thesis. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then I guess the flip side of that yeah. is uh, are there any sources of information that you don't think are uh, add a lot of value or that you don't pay attention to? Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, despite the fact I get heaps of them, I mean, some broker research is, you know, and they just really catch what the company says. 
Um, you know, for whatever, sometimes there's corporate reasons for that. They don't want to upset the company and things like that. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not disparaging all broker research by any stretch of the imagination. There's some exceptional people that write it. Um, you know, that is changing a little bit because of this too. But certainly broker research is not as good, you know, is not always that good. And certainly I, I ignore the recommendations completely. Yeah. yeah, there's you know, they, you know, we get very few sell recommendations in brokerage. Yeah, it's actually if someone does so sell, it's actually worth having a very really good look at it, um, you know, and actually analyze why. Um, but you know, it's the research itself, it's kind of you know, constructing an understanding of someone's written why you think they're wrong, yeah, like, why they're wrong, why are they right? So, broker research is not always cracked up to be. Uh, I certainly ignore speculative bulletin boards, they're just for people that. Particular one in Australia, which is, um, I, I can't believe it actually exists under the regulations, um, you know, which is hot copper. There's, there's a whole lot of people, you know, basically just push stocks on there and you know, try and ramp stuff, stocks, stocks up that they've got. So, um, and yeah, it's a lot more interesting. I mean, I find the debate on Twitter, for example, is much more high-grade. Yeah, people actually give you good information. The other source of information which is increasingly available um, is hedge fund newsletters. And um, give me a big source away. Right? <laughs> hedge fund newsletters, you go to Reddit, okay? There's a, there's a subreddit on Reddit called Security Analysis. And as part of that, there's, there's always uh, each quarter, there's, there's a component that's typed off there called Hedge Fund Letters. Okay, and there's literally just a great big list of 50 or 60 hedge fund letters. I mean, these are the smartest people in the business, or supposed to be at least. And they often, of course, they, they, they often write about a couple of stocks that they own. They write about the thesis behind them. They obviously own them. Yeah. So, yeah, let's make that abundantly clear. And they're, they're writing about some of the shares to go up in yeah. price. But, you know, but some, people, some of the letters are just stunning. Yeah, you, know, you you know you really do realise how smart some of these people are. So once you once you've now ferreted around and gone to Reddit and done the security analysis and done the hedge fund letters, uh, there are three or four I, I really recommend it very very well worth reading. Uh, one is called Horizon Kinetics. Uh, they run a lot of general stuff about markets as well as individual securities. Uh, another one is called uh, Green Hill Road. Uh, that's a guy called Scott Miller in the US. He's got a pretty small fund, but he's done very, very well. The way he writes about stocks is, is really super easy to read. Um, there's another mob um, here called Greenwood. Um, they, um, they wrote and released free uh, a very, very long research piece on TripAdvisor last year, which turned out to be pretty prescient okay. and pretty good stuff. Um, I happen to like their style. Those guys all tend to be sort of value-type investors rather than growth-type investors. Yeah. Okay, but equally, of course, you can find a heap of hedge fund leaders which have got growth investors who you know, tell you Amazon's still so cheap. <laughs> okay, and so, you know, horses for courses. You would find some people there that maybe don't work for me, but they might work for you. But, you know, go just read that stuff. It's interesting. Of course, you'll um, you know, you get the explanation of why these people own these stocks. Okay. And so you're going to develop your thinking as to why you should own not that stock, but just any other stock. 
you know, develop, hey, this is a thesis, this is this is what we're saying about why. Yeah. And and so read those things because they're really instructive yeah. and they're free. Yeah. That's great. I um I tried to do something similar by signing up to all of their mailing lists. Yeah. And now my inbox is just <laughs> overloaded with <laughs> too much stuff to ever read. So, absolutely. <laughs> what you find at the end of the day is when you find people that you, you know, can relate to albeit, you know, on across a piece of paper. Uh, and so you gravitate towards, towards that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, it's as simple as that. Yeah. Because don't forget, what, what this paper is all about, it's about developing your own investment style. Mm-hmm. You know, my style is, is pretty conservative, it's very, very value-driven. I tend to buy more boring, lower-growth stocks cheaply, you know, whereas other people, obviously, you know, are, are trying to find the next Amazon or, you know, the next... Spotify or the next whatever, you know, and that doesn't necessarily fit with me that well. I had my intuition in the past and made money out of it. You don't anymore? No. Not at this level. Random shareholders. Yeah, I think, similar to what you're saying, fundamentally misunderstood component of social media, and certainly a year ago, when the stock was about $6 million, on a per active user basis, it was a fraction of the price of Facebook. Yeah, but it is also a fraction of the price of a completely useless platform for social media, which is Snapchat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Twitter is similar. I mean, the more you use Twitter, the yeah, more you get, in many ways, the more you get out of it. Yeah. And, and as I say, it's whatever you want it to be. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's why it's, it's actually a really, really useful investment tool. Yeah, and similar to how you were saying that the conversations around investing are so good on Twitter. Yeah. Every subculture, every interest group yeah, is slowly. Twitter is that congregation point where information yeah. is disseminated. Well, well, I mean, to give you an idea on Twitter, I mean, I mean, there would have been 10 people on Twitter tweeting about Blue uh, Sky yeah. once the Glaucus report came out, and there is quite clearly, effectively, a preliminary information uh, that people added to the Glaucus report. Mm. Uh, you know, people have done their own research and have been sat there f- frustrated as hell that you know the shares have carried on going up <laughs> when they knew they were just silly. Um, and you know, the, the amount of information that got pulled effectively between people on Twitter about the whole thing, yeah, you know, it was very good and very reinforcing to the thesis that the company was structurally overvalued. Um, you know, opaque in its disclosure, didn't have four billion dollars of real funds under management, didn't disclose property transaction fees, mm. uh, and, and was carrying assets in some of its funds that were flagrantly overvalued. <laughs> were you one of the people tweeting? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. We met when I was trying to ask questions at the teleconferences. I didn't get a look. <laughs> <laughs> So, Andrew, you were speaking about the uh, hedge fund letters as a means of understanding the why. Yeah. And so the main purpose of today's discussion with you, that was a very brief introduction um, (laughs) into into you. Yes. So the main reason that we got you back on the show was something that we haven't done on the show before with any of our guests, and that is actually dive into – your way of looking at end-to-end yep. a stock and yes. how you come to value it. Yep. Um, we're not expecting you to come to a dollar no. figure at all, but uh, yeah, what, right. what we want to do is, is get an end-to-end process of idea yep. of how you identify a stock yep. all the way through to yes. hitting the buy button. Hitting the button. Okay. So, last time we get... Yeah, can I, what, what I'd love to do, and, and people might just want to get a 
pen and a bit of paper. Yes, there it is. Um, before we get into the particular company, yeah. um, I just want to maybe explain to people some really simple concepts. Yeah. Okay? And I want to do that using the example of owning a house, which you rent out. Okay, and, and it just is going to make what we say a whole lot easier to understand. Sure, go for it. So, you might, just, you might just want to, you know, so if you're listening, just, you might want to make just a little few notes here, and, and it'll just make everything else really easy. And the notes will give you a reference point for the future when you go look at a company. So, let's say you buy a million dollar house, which of course in Sydney means you'd be about 60 cases from the Yeah. So let's say you buy a million dollar house and you've got $300,000 of equity and you borrow $700,000 from the bank, which fudges all your financials. <laughs> okay? And so you've got a million bucks. Let's say within the house there's $70,000 worth of fittings, okay? so kitchen fittings, bathroom fittings, all that sort of stuff, and you rent the house out for $40,000 a year. So you're getting a rental yield of 4%. Okay, on the house value, which of course means it can't possibly be in Sydney. Dream of you in Sydney is three point seven five in the eastern suburbs, about two. Wow. Okay. Now let's also assume that your cost of money is five percent. Okay, we're not we're not going to worry about tax too much on this. Either. Okay. So first of all, so we've got a million dollar house, and you rent it out for forty grand. So you get 40 grand a year, the real estate agent, which we hope is McGrath, uh, <laughs> takes a 6% fee, so that's 2,400 bucks. So your uh, your top line profit, if you will, is $37,600, okay? Now, if you think about it, that is your earnings from the house before interest charges, because remember you borrowed 700 grand, um, or tax, or depreciation because the fittings will depreciate. Now there's no amortization in this. That's a, an asset you brought which you have to um, discount the value of over a period of time. So now you're going to see the word every security you look at, you're going to see this acronym EBITDA. Okay? Earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization. And the reason why you see it, it is a proxy for pre-tax pre-interest cash flow, and I'm going to show you how they marry up when we look at our stock, okay? So your EBITDA is $37,600. Your depreciation will say is 10%, so every year you can write off seven grand. So your earnings before interest and tax is 30 grand, 30,600, and 37,6 minus 7,000. However, your interest cost, of course, is 5% of $700,000, which is $35,000 a year in interest you're paying to the bank, which is interest only. So you're actually going to make a pre-tax loss, $4,400, okay? However, your cash flow is 37,600, Minus how much you sent to the bank, which is thirty-five thousand. So you've actually got cash flow before you have to spend on upkeep of two thousand six hundred dollars. Okay. However, if your upkeep costs five grand a year, you've got to be putting in money, obviously. So if it's five grand a year of upkeep, then you'll be out of pocket to the tune of about two thousand four hundred bucks. Now let's get a couple of other concepts out of the way as well, and uh, you'll, you'll see why I use this example. 
the $300,000 of equity you put in, that is the equity capitalization of this house. Okay? When you add the $700,000 of debt to it, okay, that is what is called, in a company context, the enterprise value. Okay? So if you took over that house, okay, um, you know, you'll basically, if the house was in a little company and you took over the company, effectively the company wasn't just going to cost you the 300 of equity, you are going to have to absorb the $700,000 of debt. And of course what people do is they often relate uh, cash flow to the entire enterprise value of the company, because that's the relevant bit. Okay, if you were to buy every share in the company, what Warren Buffett talks about, you know, these things as businesses, not bits of paper. Okay, if you were to buy every share in the company, that's effectively what it would cost you. Only three hundred thousand dollars for the equity, but you'd have a seven hundred thousand dollar debt that you've absorbed as well. Okay, so I want to get those concepts across. So the equity value, three hundred in the case of our house, the enterprise value for our house is a million bucks. EBITDA, which we established in the case of our house, is rent minus the real estate fee, 37,600. EBIT, 30,600, which is EBITDA minus depreciation, and then obviously the interest charge. Okay? So you could argue if this house was a company, it's probably not worth very much because it's not, <laughs> no. it's not actually producing an after-tax profit at all. No. In fact, it's not even producing an after-tax cash flow because no. you've got to keep putting money in. Yeah. Okay. So you can probably start to see, you know, it's not, it's not a great, it's, it's not a particularly great deal. Um, and in fact, the pre-tax, pre-interest cash flow of thirty-seven thousand six hundred is only a three point seven six percent return on a million dollars. So it's pretty crap. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. um, I should give a disclosure here that I actually own no real estate anywhere in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, we might just uh, tell our listeners, we'll put that in a blog post to go yeah. with this episode release. Absolutely. So if they didn't get write that all down, uh, they can go to equimates.com slash blog and we'll, we'll have that explained with this episode. And that's... Use that because if you start coming to companies, I mean, it may sound very simplistic, but I'm giving you, you might find it's actually quite effective to help you understand the various concepts that, that go into looking at a company without you having to be an accounting genius. Yeah, so, okay. Um, you are going to need to be an accounting genius in the next 12 months because all the accounting rules are changing. <laughs> um, particularly, you're going to hear SB 15, which is Australian Accounting Standards Board 15. Which is going to change the way revenue is accounted for. Okay. Um, it's going to spread revenue out over a longer period of time. Um, and double SB 16, which uh, anybody involved in a major retailer is going to hate because it's going to bring all those shop fronts on balance sheets. Yeah. You know, leases for all the supermarkets and, and whatever, they're actually not on balance sheet at the moment, but they're going to be brought on balance sheet. Yeah. So, you know, all this is debt. It's going to Okay. Yeah. Okay. We, we both work for major retailers, so very, very This is going to change the return concept uh, yeah. quite a bit. So just, just be aware things are going to get a bit complicated. Okay? So, right. Okay, so 
That was uh, an some intro of, to an intro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, I think that was a good uh, summary of some of the main concepts that yeah. now we're going to uh, sort of apply to your process. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, Equity Mates, and sorry for the poor audio. We tried to do the best we could to clean it up, but we know it still wasn't great. We hope the content and Andrew Brown's insights more than made up for the poor quality audio. Tune in next week, or next episode even, to listen to Andrew Brown apply some of the concepts he just spoke about to a stock that he's currently looking at. Equity Mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.